Welcome to Smaller Narratives for a Larger World, brought to you by IASH, Binghamton University's Institute for Advanced Studies in New Humanities. I'm your host, Cole DePew, and today we're talking to Joe Weil about the human myth. Joe is an amazing poet, professor, and human being who I'm happy to call my friend. This episode starts with his poem, Morning at the Elizabeth Arch, and ends with a quick background on the poem. We jumped right into the conversation with little introductions, but I'm sure you'll feel all caught up in no time. So without further ado, here's our show. Morning at the Elizabeth Arch. The winos rise as beautiful as deer. Look how they stagger from their sleep as if the morning were a river against which they contend. This is not a sentiment filled with the disdain, disdain of human pity. They turn in the mind, they turn beyond the human order. One scratches his head and yawns. Another rakes a hand through slick mats of thinning hair. They blink and the street litter moves its slow, liturgical way. A third falls back, bracing himself on an arm. At river's edge, the deer stand poised. One breaks the spell of his reflection with a hoof and struggling begins to cross. Okay, so there's a very weird kind of place where the anim- the more animal you get, the more supernatural you get to a certain extent. All right, so it, it's a weird contradiction. And you can see it in poetry. You can see it in uh, Rilke's uh, animal poems, his panther, for instance, or the, uh, the gazelle, you know, where he's seeing the full power of this animal. But by doing that, he's becoming more human because of his ability to see peer into that world for a moment yeah yeah athletics are so cool even if we're athletic macho and kind of fit that it's still just kind of terrifying to to compete and then watching it sometimes is like vicariously living through it a little bit oh definitely i mean that's the definition of a fan they're vicariously Living through, they're, they're like Aristotle's people that go to the tragedies. They go to the tragedies. <laughs> they have catharsis. You know, there they are. They're rooting for the top player. You know, Mike, Mike Trout makes this incredible catch. And even if you don't root for who roots for the California Angels, you're just awed, in awe, you know. So for a moment, you're, you're Mike Trout, you know, and there's that, that, that identification. But it's an identification with a physical action. You know, and Robert, I remember Roberto Clemente as a kid. He was my, I was a Yankee fan, but Roberto Clemente was my top. He was my idol because everything he did was interesting. The way he got up to the plate and would move his neck, the way he would go for a swing. He could throw a baseball like 420 feet on a beeline and get a guy out. He, I saw him do it on TV, you know, on TV. And he just was graceful and beautiful. You know, and you would look at this and it would elevate you. So the animal doesn't necessarily degrade. But when the animal is made bestial and made ugly and made inferior, and it's like animal means inferior, it's anthropomorphic. All right. Like I, those pictures I showed you of how the Irish were depicted. The Irish Frankenstein. By the very respectable English middle class. All right. People who consider themselves very good humane people we have the magna carta just like we we have the declaration of independence yeah but who do you extend it to landowning uh white guys white guys landowning white guys and then gradually if you look at it our the history of our of who we confer whiteness on is almost the chart of nazis in reverse because the nazis say well there's anglo the anglo the aryan german then there's the anglo-saxon and they have a diminishing whiteness yeah they actually have a chart. Slobs are considered barely human. Mm. All right. And then it gets then for the sake of a of temporary alliance with the Japanese, they confirm humanity, but it was temporary and it could be pulled away. We we look at that in horror, but the history of our immigration patterns actually is that to a T. So, so the story of America, I mean, it's a story and there's multiple ways to tell it. And depending on who gets to tell it, 
I think it, there's just so much variation. Right. So how how is it so easy for the story of America to be freedom when it was clearly so clearly uh, based off of oppression and theft of land? Well, it was one person's freedom at the expense of somebody else's whole life. I mean, obliteration. So the Americans come here. I mean, they weren't Americans. They were English. They were, you know, the North and South that we forget that history, as Faulkner said, history isn't past. It's, I mean, history isn't dead. It's not even, it's not even past. You know, it's always with us. The And I'm misquoting him, but it's a paraphrase. Sure. The when you think about it, the South had a lot of adventurers who came to settle. They weren't intending to stay. They were going to make a quick buck, buck off a cash crop and then go back to and live high on the hog. A lot of them were black sheep of arist- aristocratic families. They were the guys nobody wanted. You know, right? They were the, the, the adventurers. They said, get out of here. And they went and they, you know, if they survived malaria and everything else, then they made their, they made their money off exploiting the land. All right. And it very quickly, within less than 20 years, exploiting a slave force. All right. So that's one way. Now, in England, I mean, in Puritan, the North, it was the idea of religious freedom, but only the religious freedom to be a Congregationalist, a Puritan. And they were very organized. They were communal. It wasn't about they still made a great deal of money off the whaling industry. I mean, and exploited the whales to the point of extinction. All right. But they had Milton, Milton probably wrote the greatest essay on why we should have public education ever written. It still was, it's used in the 20th century. I don't know if it's used in the 21st, but Milton, who was a Puritan. All right. And the Puritans believed in the idea that you should, everybody should learn to read and be educated so they could study the Bible was this Calvinist idea. But they also believe in the Calvinist idea of man of destiny, of we have this destiny and we're here by God's, yeah, by, by providence. And if we take over and we have authority, God gave us authority. All right. Both places had an interesting initial relationship with the indigenous populations. If you read Germs and Steel, we killed off over one quarter of the Indians and Native Americans before we ever met them just from the disease from fishermen, all right? But they come here and initially they, they, they act like they can at least deal with them as equals if they're the top guys in the tribe, okay? In Virginia, they even married. They intermarried at first, just like they did in colonial India. They intermarried and first-generation Virginians are proud of their, their so-called indigenous bloodline because it was noble. Within 20 years after the first wars or skirmishes, that's no longer. No, no, no. White men don't do not marry, you know, unless they're Scotch Irish who they bring over here to fight Indians and kill them. So, yeah, there's this whole history of whose freedom, the freedom of the landowner, the freedom of the aristocratic adventurer, the entrepreneur. And if you look at our current history, the, the entrepreneurial economy of the last 45 years is basically it rewards the same basic prototypes, white adventurers, okay? And every once in a while they admit, you know, they admit what they call the black exception in a way, you know? They'll say, well, we're not prejudiced. Here's Oprah. It's a token. Yeah, it's a token. And they'll do that. But the truth is, for the most part, anytime there was black equity threatening to be built, it was ruthlessly destroyed the toll the Tulsa riots and way more than that blacks were not a lot of people don't realize that black men and women were not allowed to move freely for jobs in the north in the south to the ni- late 1930s they would the, the the northern states would have to pay a tax so they were still buying black men and women i mean it's horrendous so when you think about what's human how do we can the problem is in conference you know, no one should have that power to confer humanity. You know, oh, you're human and you're not, you know, you're, you're okay. You're, you're a good citizen and you're a wretch. All right. You exist to be my equal and to argue with me over the dinner table. And you exist to be the subject of our argument. Even here, me talking about this, I'm making a subject. 
out of people. But you can't be avoided, you know, in that sense. But if I think about it, I have class issues. I mean, I was raised, my father was a machinist. My mother, contometer operator, they had high school diplomas, which was rare actually for that time. That's maybe equivalent to be, but they were working class. My father worked in a factory. I worked in a factory. I grew up in a neighborhood, so I was kind of sheltered from classism until I got into college or until I got on the poetry scene. And I would have people constantly saying to me, oh, my grandfather worked in a factory. That was their way of saying, I like you. And I'm going to try to come down from my perch and show you, you know, I, you know, and I, I suddenly realized, wow, you know, there's these class divides. I, I remember going to Edison, Colonia, New Jersey, which was two bus rides and a whole galaxy removed from Elizabeth. And I went, I, a woman next door, her door, grand, her granddaughter lived next, uh, came to visit her. And she, she invited me to this party with my friends. And in Elizabeth, we were used to pooling. Everybody just brought beer and it was everybody's beer. We go up there and we put our beer in the refrigerator. We go to take another beer and some kid goes, that's our beer. You guys, you white trash guys don't understand this. So it was ridiculous. It was like a grade Z version of the, uh, of uh, what's that novel? The Outsiders. <laughs> it was the the socias and the, uh, the greasers all over again. It was weird to watch and to see it even though, it, but you know, I think about that and who confer, who had the right to confer poet on me, you know, who has the right to decide what a poet is and what value I'm to have as a poet. You know, people are constantly, people will put you in categories and they put me in the working class category, which is fine with me because I can, because I'll use it. But in that usage comes double, a type of double consciousness, a type of fraud, a feeling of fraud. All right. Because the part of me that writes has nothing to do with the part of me that ground tools. The part of me that writes was reading four books a week. I can write about being in the factory. But as Socrates said, when you're no longer being in the pain, your remembrance of the pain is a distortion. Mm -hmm. When I was in the factory and I wrote about the factory, I was still going out to a reading and reading it. What is in the factory there has, you have to be honest and respectful enough to say it's untranslatable in the end. It, it's a subject. You're not living that either. So you can say, even when I'm taking from my genuine life, there's a degree of appropriation to it. And one must be careful because of that, because you bear that burden, you know, and a responsibility. Tell us more about um, your working in the factory in in relationship to the management. And I'm curious in the ways that they may have used your humanhood against you. Well, you know, as I said, I told I think I told you a story that one time in union negotiations, they had me as a shop steward. And because the guy said, while they called me, a, I don't know if I can, can I curse here? Can I use the yeah, SIT? Yeah, that's fine. Okay. They called, wow, you're such a good bullshit artist. We want you to be our shop steward. That was exactly why. Because they said you can talk across the table. <laughs> so it was true. I could talk across the table. And I could. So I got the president. He was so furious. He slammed his hand down like Khrushchev or whatever. And he goes, you should get down on your goddamn hands and knees. And thank God I was born to give you a job. And he meant it. He was so sick of us lazy guys who were taking advantage of him. Now, he was the child of a man who was supposedly self-made, who had come over here from Germany, been a toolmaker, started his own factory, but he wasn't self-made. He started a plastics factory in the height of World War II when somebody could have fell out of bed and made money, and he had been given a, a stake. He was a, a boss kind of guy that certain workers admire because he came supposedly from being a worker. And he would flip you money. He would get mad. He'd fire you one minute and the next minute he'd give you a raise. That was the father. This was the son. And the son had not made his way up, although he was always feeling bad about it. People were always comparing him to his father. So he had his own problems. But that would happen. I would watch how, the, how management tried to pit different ethnic groups against each other. One time as a shop steward, I go into the office and there's a, a guy and he it's a black guy and he, he goes, listen, I, Joe, I want to crack at those new CNC machines and they won't give it to me. 
So I said, I'll go in the office. We'll file a grievance because you're, you're, you have seniority. You should get first crack. I go in and they go, Joe, we know the Vietnamese guys are just much better at math and at these new machines. So I look at them and I'm laughing and they go, why are you laughing? I go, I want you to put that in writing. I want you to put in writing that we are not allowing Leon to work on a CNC machine because Vietnamese guys are much better at math. I want you to put that in writing. Okay. And they look at me, they go, all right, we'll give Leon a crack at it. And then the Vietnam the guys in the shop from Vietnam, from Cambodia, some of these guys had survived the Cambodian. They were, they were boat. They were, had been boat people, what they called the boat people. One guy said, Joe, why should I join your damn union? Don't you know I was in the Cambodian Sea and I had to hold somebody else's head down so I could breathe. And I said, well, you're not in the goddamn Cambodian Sea anymore. And you got a wife and you need medical benefits. So that's why you should join my union. Fuck the Cambodia. I, I just said, I, and, I, and he looked at me and he started laughing. He goes, you're crazy. And then he came to my meeting and he ended up being the shop steward after I left. But the point being that they would pit one group against another. They would tell the Vietnamese guys, don't train Leon. Or they would hesitate to train him. So you would see this and you would see like prison cliques. You would see certain departments being run by certain groups and they were territorial because management, I told the guys, I go, just because the foremen suck and they la- they yell, but they're kind of from, they're the overseers. They're not the real danger. It's those guys upstairs who you think are so nice and never yell at you, who are telling the foreman to fire you. They're the guys that are saying, we need to get rid of 20 of you. All right. They're the guys that are cutting your pay peace on peace and making your peace rates impossible. But because they're soft spoken, because they never raise their voice, because they they're they're echo. It's like being tortured. That's how I saw it. They, the guy comes in, the foreman is the guy that cracks the whip and calls you names. Asshole, get back to your machine. You're one minute off your break, especially around union negotiation time. All right. And the for and the management's the guy that comes down. How are you, Joe? How are you, Jimmy? What's your problem? Right? He's the good cop. Right? But he's still a cop. And the good cop's the worst one. Because he's the one that after you've been tortured, comes with a warm, piss warm glass of water and gives you a drink. And for one lousy drink of water, you're willing to sell out your fellow workers or whatever. So, you know, that's what I learned in the factory. And people don't think that exists at the university. But of course it does, because our whole culture is based on the idea of getting as much out of people we despise as possible without giving much. And it's also based on the idea of the plantation. And the entrepreneurial economy pretends that everybody can be a millionaire. And the only reason they're not a millionaire is because they're lazy, which is absolutely insane. The entrepreneurial economy, by its definition, is based on rarity. How can you base a whole economy on rarity? You know, and I'm seeing that in the, the university. It's the achievement economy, supposedly. Right. You put out a book, you do this and that. But meanwhile, the bulk of the, the uh, teaching is done by adjuncts, low paid adjuncts. All right. And if, if I see their medical benefits, some of them don't have medical benefits in some places. They don't get sick days. All right. And so conferring humanity, power confers humanity, and that's its number one sin. It has no right to confer my humanity. All right. Or anybody else. Let me ask you, what is uh, your humanity? What would you value as human in you? Because we, we're trying to tell a story about what is human. I Yeah, I, it's weird because I, I actually went into this subject with my students. I said, what would you die for? Or better, what would you actually give your life to, to the point where it inconveniences you almost permanently? Marriage is a permanent inconvenience. You just entered into that. All right. In some ways, you know, you got to give, you got to give up a lot, you know what I mean? To gain, so, you know, and what would you do? And people were talking, well, I'd die for my mother. And somebody said, I wouldn't die for anybody. And I said, well, that's a good, honest answer. To me, my humanity is partly based on what I am allowed to do, given the ground zero of my being. If everything else is taken away from me, how do I still 
what am I still given agency over? You know? So when you think of Orlando Patterson talking about social death and slaves, all right, the social death means permanent, violent taking away of your humanity. You don't have a past, your past is destroyed, and your future is sold wherever they want to sell it. So somebody like that, there's a line in uh, Simone Weil, the, the, the philosopher, and she goes, she talked about the cross, but I'm, I'm not trying to get religious here, but I'm just saying, she said, sometimes you're buried with your head up, your, your neck, the sand up to your neck. And the only choice you have is to look at or away. So what people don't realize that very often what they think is the kindness of servants. People say, oh, you know, my workers weren't unhappy. They always had a smile. I liked hanging out on the floor floor because those guys are so happy. No, that's their agency. They chose to look happy. They chose that smile might be saying, I want to kill you, but I can't. So I'm going to smile at you. All right. I'm going to act like you don't even matter. I'm going to act like it's just a sunny day. All right. So your humanity at base level can be like a very either or, or proposition. I mean, in a culture that pretends to what's even more insidious, a culture that pretends to affirm your humanity as long as you follow what they consider the norm or the approved approved abnorm. All right. Because we're still... America is about expansion and inclusion. We gradually include different people. Now we include like gay men and women into the idea of marriage and the contract of marriage. We give them the right to get divorced and do this. But we confer it. There's a travesty in the whole idea that it had to be conferred. And then there's also, so, you know, it's a very difficult question because you think my poetry when I wrote a poem on a labor ticket on the 12 tape shift in a factory, that was an actual major act of resistance that I would bring in even a poet as like unlikely in a factory as Wallace Stevens, let's say, I know who happens to be this guy, Frank will some people's favorite poet. He's Jamal May's favorite poet. Yeah. Jamal May knows he's a terrible person, but a great poet. So you bring him in and I'm reading the house was quiet and the world was calm in a place where that about two hours later, I almost lost my finger to a monoset wheel. All right. I would write my poems on labor tickets because they were in triplicate. So if I lost the one copy or I had to shove it really quick to hide from the boss, I would still have another copy. I wrote Ode to Elizabeth and maybe most of my first book on the night shift in the factory. And I made a deal with a foreman that I would let him know if any major management people were coming in and wake him up from his nap if he would let me write as long as I got my work done. So there were these deals, you know, and I would I would get my, all my drills done and then I would write. And, you know, and then he would I would wake him up because he'd sleep half the night, you know, and. So in a way, you know, we weren't cheat. The company was getting the work it wanted done. But it was like, the truth is that you always have to look busy. That's an act of violence. If you've ever worked as a waiter or a waitress and there's downtime, there's nothing going on. Do the silverware, wash the silverware, set, count the plates. All right. They got you doing this insanely stupid work. You've counted because they cannot stand the idea of you having leisure time while they're paying you. I told the boss, I'm an in-case worker. And he goes, what's that? I go, I'm here in case somebody needs something. I go, in case I'm a worker, a percipient worker. I go, and the boss said, well, I'm sick of your bullshit, right? And he was laughing. I made him laugh because making him laugh would mean that I wouldn't get fired, maybe. So I learned to con. And that's what I meant when I was writing to you, Cole, that we all learn to be liars because of the culture we're in. We learn to con each other. Seeming, Machiavellian seeming runs everything. And I'm not being a cynic. I mean, we're, we're performing. Sometimes when I'm on Zoom, I feel like I'm being held hostage, like a gun's to my back. Because I just have to kind of like, look, you know, like I'm very, very here and together. And all I want to do is just log it off and go, and just like let go for a second. I worked at a landscaping job for a while 
And I remember uh, my boss one morning, and I used to do what you say. I used to try to make him laugh, but I, I was always so nervous. Um, and uh, and one day I, I sliced through an irrigation pipe by accident. <laughs> oh, man. I thought I did bad. I broke three of the weeds. And that's how I got fired. I broke three of them in one day in about an hour. Well, that's the thing. <laughs> I, and so I told him, I told my boss, and he was pissed. And uh, And we fixed it. And 10 minutes later, I did the same thing. And I didn't tell him about the second one because I was so afraid. I didn't want to be a liar, but uh, I felt like for me, not the owner of the business, that I was like, okay with not telling him. And, you know, I I don't regret that really, but it is kind of just an awful position. It's, it's what I say to myself, venality. It's, yeah, yeah. It's all these venial sins you have to commit in order to pretend the system's working and you're working with it to, you know, because total obedience to a system, actually you'll get, there's more of a chance of you being killed if you're truly obedient than if you're kind of like a little bit of a slickster because true obedience means the system's unnecessary. You've embodied it and most systems will kill you if you're that obedient. You know, the communists couldn't have Trotsky around. He was too purist. They couldn't have Che around. Che was a liability. All right. And so, yeah. And, you know, to be, to go, well, I, you know, I broke, I broke through a pipe, you know, or something. Like, yeah. You, you know, you learn pretty quick what you have to lie about. It's, it's cool. Like, so rules are meant to be broken, of course. And, uh, and I, what the story I told myself was I'm not a liar. Um, one of the myths of, of America, I think, is the George Washington. Choice. I cannot tell a lie. Yeah. <laughs> which, yeah, which never happened. Of course, Washington, if you read what he says about social inferiors and how you're supposed to ha- be co- polite, but at a distance always with your troops, the guy's nothing but mocking. He's seeming. He uses seeming. So it's always about dissembling. The whole idea of the general. The Washington myth, the image is, is the laudatory term for it would be a brand. I love it. I love using Bentham's tripartite structure. Laudatory, brand. I'm branding myself. Neutral. I'm making an image. It's an imago. It's, a, it, it's an idea of me rather than me. The bottom of that is I'm lying. <laughs> All right. I'm lying. I'm presenting to you a construct. Yes, it's a construct, but it's also a lie, you know? And so I don't know, but authenticity at the same time, we're obsessed with authenticity. Like little two-year-olds, is that a real story? Yeah. Is that real? Yeah. Well, I mean, you mentioned earlier um, about memory and how we we change our memories to self-serve ourselves. And I think, you know, not only do we do that on a personal level, um, on a friendship relationship level, as a national level, but also as a species level. I think we tell a story about who humans are. I mean, there's the creationists, um, there's the Big Bang, Adam and Eve, um, kind of being morphed through by clay. But, you know, I, I think one of the interesting ones is just how there doesn't seem to be, um, there's an assumption that this is kind of the end. Like humans are the top. Like we made it, you know. Let's enjoy. Yeah, it. we're the worst and the best, right? We're we're that we're the Dickens antithesis, you know. We're going to destroy the world, and we're also the ones that created this, you know. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I, I was just curious, like, um, I don't know, you know, your upbringing. Um, you know, you mentioned the cross, or you know, I'm just wondering. Irish Catholic to a certain extent. Yeah. So were you told any creation myths when you were a kid? Of course, you know, I, you know, of course I had Adam and Eve, but I was also taught evolution. I had what they call progressive nuns. They were amazing. They, they taught evolution. They said the two could be, they go, look, the first Genesis story says man arose from the muck of the earth. That's amino acids. And they go, and now all you got to do is take Isaiah who says, you can't judge the time of the Lord because one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is a day, which means one day could have been millions of years. So they go, there's no contradiction here except for one thing. God created it. It's not random. And then they would give you St. Thomas Summa 
I got a good education. I have to admit. I mean, I'm reading St. Thomas's Summa Theologica, Theologica in seventh grade. I mean, I'm being showed five proofs for the existence and all this stuff. Now, I'm also being shown one nun hands me, she thinks I have talent. And she hands me James Joyce, Dubliners. And she goes, Mr. Wiley, you're very disrespectful sometimes, but you have talent. And your poem had good scansion. She says, here, read this heretic. <laughs> and she gives me James Joyce. Yeah, well, he's, you know, J- Joyce turned away from the church and never went back. But the weird thing is he couldn't turn away from the church in his stories. It's saturated with Catholicism, you know, and Flannery O'Connor. I mean, you know, all these all these people are saturated. What you turn your back from must be very strong in you or you wouldn't have to turn your back, would you? It has to be a violent wrenching away. So, you know, um, yeah, that being working class neighborhood. Neighborhood's very different. I didn't grow up in the suburbs. I grew up in a city that was in the midst of the Rust Belt or urban decay of the 1960s. You know, I remember being in Key West and somebody said, have you ever, because they make a big deal out of the sunsets in Key West. They go, have you ever seen such a beautiful sunset? I go, oh, I've seen plenty of them. They go, what do you mean? I go, Elizabeth, New Jersey has way better sunsets than this. They go, what do you mean? I go, because it's so polluted. The sky's like 50 different colors, which was true. It was green. It was copper. My river ran pink because of the Pepto-Bismol factory. So the river would run pink. It was like the Wizard of Oz. Okay, so we're talking about an ecological living, growing up in what you didn't know is an ecological disaster, you know, and the only real eco places would be the places that the suburbs would consider filthy, the abandoned factories, the old railroad tracks. There you could still see songbirds because things were allowed to grow wild. They weren't all turned to, you know, and to turn back just like Chernobyl, isn't it horrible irony that now in Chernobyl, they have some of the best, some of the greatest, most flourishing wildlife here in this radioactive zone that's permanently off limits to humans. I mean, think about it. Elizabeth, New Jersey was called the armpit of America. It was called, it had standard oil, it had all the oil refineries around it, the chem plants, and it was the home of the DeCalva Conti, um, uh, you know, La Costa, New Jersey family. It's the Soprano. So they allowed a lot of dumping to take place in both Staten Island and New Jersey and in, in Elizabeth. That probably caused a lot of people to get cancer, you know, and people turn the other way. That's where I grew up. So I have my poetry asked this question, I think, in most of my poems. What still has value given the absolute trashing that has been made of your life. You're in a factory. It's two in the morning. All right. You close the loading. I have a poem like that. You close the the the, the gate to the loading dock for the, the door. And it's a heavy door. So for a minute, it all goes silent. You know, this loud clamor stops and there's a few stars above it. And you see a, a, a raccoon rummaging in the garbage bin. And you see this forsythia and it's crayon yellow, but in the, the light of the nighttime, it's this glowing, weird bush. And you're out there breathing and you're having like 10 minutes of, uh, of surcease from, from, from this stinking factory where all the floors are made of creosote blocks. All right. And you're plugging lead hammers with asbestos. So I, my poems are about what's left even at the ground zero, what can still give you, what still is of value, you know, that's really important. I see that is about, in that sense, myself as a kind of transvaluation. I like to challenge the obvious because people will look at that and say, oh, that's garbage. These people aren't worth anything. These people are incorrect. You know, anytime somebody calls somebody intrinsically incorrect, they're making the same sin as a racist. Nobody's intrinsic being is incorrect, you know? No, no I mean, not, not even the pollution that you're talking about can be intrinsically incorrect, really. I mean, if it exists, if it exists, it's there, and that's okay. You, you mentioned the trash, though, I got to say. Um, you know, I'm thinking about your poetry as a form of sanctuary, and, and I've always thought about like, 
bathrooms and garbage bins as sanctuaries, um, especially on the job. Uh, yeah. I remember taking the garbage out. I used to work at a coffee shop and now I could breathe near the trash because I was alone. Same thing I'm saying. Yeah. When I worked at a, as, as a cook, I would go to the garbage and I used to go to this um, at midnight. We would go to the garbage. I worked in a, a, a steakhouse in New Hampshire and we used to have to pull the cars up to get the black bears out of the garbage. You know, they would crawl in and eat the steaks that, you know, people wouldn't finish. And, and who uh, could blame them? They were the original dumpster divers, yeah. Yeah, and they would come up and their beautiful heads, and they'd crawl down and crawl up a tree and uh, climb up a tree. And I would, you know, I would just feel very at, at ease near garbage because garbage is garbage is what the wilderness. Yeah, gar- everybody thinks the wilderness is this pristine place, but the wilderness is random too. It, it has that randomness, and so you know, it's the place where people aren't ordering it. So you. I can see why a worker comes out, uh, you know, somebody's working and they're going out to the dumpster and for a minute there, they can smoke, they can yep. smoke whatever you're smoking. All right. And you can breathe and you can look up at the stars and no one's controlling that moment at that right there. Yeah. And isn't that weird that it takes place for both of us it took place by a, by the garbage and by the dump and by, and by, you know, the loading dock, you know, and, you know, for in my case, you know, where you could silence things for a minute, you could take a breath. You know, I mean, I remember somebody came out with me one time. The guy goes, "How do you know that's a forsythia wild? How do you know that's a black cherry tree? How do you know that's Orion? What is all this shit, wild? What do you know all this?" I go, "Because I, I I like to know that stuff because it makes me feel like better." What do you mean it makes you feel better? I go, "It just makes me feel better." I mean, there's a, there's a real disconnect or a disassociation with the outside other than human world. And not knowing a plant's name in your front yard is, is really sad because, you know, then I don't know where I fit next to that plant. Right. And then other people say it's not sad because if you know the plant's name, then you've taken power over it. Because there's that theory that if you know something's name, you're taking power over it. Because Adam, the patriarchal Adam naming things. But the truth is, I learned names because I was so lonely. That if I could go, and it really helped me at one point because I was working with kids in Patterson on a three-year grant for at-risk kids. And they got thrown out of the Milburn Playhouse and they weren't the kids causing the trouble. They were thrown out because they were of color. All right. We get out back on the bus. They go, Mr. Joe. They called me Mr. Joe. No one likes us because we're some, from someplace else. We're from the Dominican Republic because most of them are from there. I said, everything here is from somewhere else. I go, what do you think? Everything's native plants? I go, even the plants. They go, what do you mean? I go, I'm going to take you on a field trip tomorrow, my own kind of field trip. And they go, where? I go, I'm going to take you across the street to the vacant lot. And I point out, I said, chicory weed from Europe, China flower from, well, the name says it, China. I go, I went dandelions from Europe. I went through every weed in that field. And I said, there's only two weeds here that are native, you know? So there's a power there's a, a, a good power because how can anybody make you can, can can take away your dignity? I mean, what? Only the educated have the right to name things. That's what I. So I got all my students Peterson's field guides. I go now. You have the same power as the botanists. Yeah, it's like plant plant politics and trees. Um, yeah, with invasive the the language around invasive species. Oh yeah, the whole cult of purity. I once said somebody take just take the language of purity and take away all that it's talking about the ecology and you'll see it's almost the language of 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 ra- of racists it's almost the language because purity is a dangerous thing what's pure bring up something you brought up earlier so you mentioned that Elizabeth is the armpit of America that's what they called it the New York Times said grimy Elizabeth and the armpit of America yeah I for me, it was home. And then you identified, you know, as people calling you white trash. I'm just interested, like, how the human is the trash, which is an object, and then the country is actually a human. So, like, humanizing the, the country as having an armpit and then putting, yeah. you know, the non-human or the humans as the non-human white trash in that armpit. Yeah, the bad part of the human. The part of the human that you're supposed to put deodorant on. Yeah. The part of the human whose stink you're supposed to hide. Yeah. So we don't smell uh, like, you know, anything besides whatever, lavender or or athletes, you know. 
that same yeah, thing. Yeah, you know how I many poets have said to me, oh, I've never been in Elizabeth, but I've smelled it from the turnpike, you know? And, you know, I just, I say, yeah, I go that you'll never be in there either, will you? You you can't know a place if you're not in it. And then you don't even smell it when you're in there. Yeah. Oh, that's how we knew. Somebody said, how did you know it was spring? I go, the first smell of the chem plants, you would smell them for the first time. And the horse, we had a horse, a glue factory. You would smell the, you know, the smell of horse flesh being, all right. And the ice cream man. I go, those three things. And you knew it was spring. You would hear the bells of the good humor man. And, you know, you would you would smell the chem plants because the air would get warm enough for the smell to be permeating. All right. So my idea of spring wasn't creepers. And people are appalled by that. But the weird thing is, I know, here's the, the contradictory thing. Elizabeth later became one of the 50 green cities in the United States. It's once all the factories closed and everything went, Elizabeth actually had this a massive cleanup program and it always had a lot of trees. They would knock the sidewalks in and up and down. I mean, and my father grew up on a farm. He grew up in the country. So he met my, my mother when he came to work in the cities and he filled my head with all these ideas of trees and plants and my mother's family was from the west of Ireland, which is very rural. So I never grew up without a garden. And I never grew up without some idea that the trees were important, even in that place that is the armpit of America. That's where the life of the body is. That's where the glands are. That's where the pheromones are. Who are we kidding? That's where you sweat. That's how you how you respire, how you survive. It's a very vital. You know, and, and the metaphor was the metaphor shows everything that's, you know, that about us that wants to dehumanize or even humanize in the worst way possible. You're right. It is. That's perfect. You picked that in the pit of America, right? Yeah, it, it's just it goes to show how we try to hide our humanity um, with, you know, products. And so getting a haircut all the time, brushing my teeth, covering my body up, you know, wearing cologne. Yeah, in, in, now here's the weird thing. My family would be appalled at me right now, all right? I, when, as a kid, my brother and I would have to get our suits pressed every week. We'd have to bring them to dry cleaners. We have to make sure our shoes were shined because you were supposed to, you have to wash your butt and do this. You're not supposed to stink because it was a sign of respect. And my father, my father was like this weird sociologist. I don't know. He goes, you know, rich people, those rich people out there in short Hills, which is this rich part of New Jersey, or those rich, he didn't say white people, but rich people, right? They don't ever have to look good. They can be as frumpy as they want. That's why they call them old Jew Harvard. You know, and I, we used to just laugh at my father thinking, oh, that's stupid. He goes, you know, you can tell a lot by a person's garbage. Look at a rich person's garbage. There's hardly any food in it. They starve their kids. And so when the anorexia first came on TV, my dad was still alive. Look at that. See, I saw the truth. Years later, when Bernie Sanders goes to the inauguration, he's wearing a frumpy outfit. And they say, that's white privilege. I said, my dad would have agreed. My dad, because working class people showed the respect by dressing up for an occasion. All right. You casual wear my father said i don't wear jeans they're for cowboys cowboys really have to wear jeans they're to stop them from getting wounded he goes what the hell are we wearing jeans for he goes like that i'm not a cowboy you know his whole attitude was show respect you know you dress to show you never go to somebody's funeral without wearing a suit so it was a different attitude and then i saw that that attitude was perceived by by people of color, by other working class people say, okay, people from it as God, you know, you can be frumpy. You can dress casual. When I first came here, somebody told me, Joe, don't wear a suit to your interview. Suits are out. Yeah. Then you're supposed to dress like one position higher than you're applying for. Yeah. You're what they, what they told me was wear a sweatshirt, but make sure it's a $500 one. Wear jeans, but make sure the rips cost you $400. All right. Basically, my suits were from Brooks, not from Brooks Brothers. They were from like two guys or Robert Halls or wherever we could afford. But, you know, so 
basically somebody's ripped jeans costed about 17 of my suits. So now we're getting into the class system and now we're getting into semiotics and branding and how, and, and how people subtly say, oh, I'm just folks. However, I'm just folks with an advanced degree and I can buy and sell you. Yeah, there's a, there's a real appeal to uh, be kind of working class or appear like you can get down with the working class. And... But, but the, the, the weirdest thing is that, you know, I, it's not, there was no such thing as leisure wear when I was a kid. No, there was no leisure wear. And look, leisure wear is the biggest con. I admire con artists because I, you know, I had to spend some time on the streets. The greatest con artist of the of the late 20th century was whoever came up with this idea of, Hey, we're going to show you how to dress down, you know, how to look like you're having fun. You know, we're going to make you pay $200 to, <laughs> to go get dirty. <laughs> That's a genius. It's a, it's a scam. It's a beautiful scam. That's how I see it, you know, and it's pulled off because people, no matter how people, signify they're still trying to signify hierarchy all right i'm a more worthy human being than you leisure is a privilege for sure yeah leisure is a privilege and the whole idea of just folks america one nobody's talking about the incredible horrible miracle in america that a billionaire can come off as just folks how is that possible how how small do our brains have to be to believe that somebody that has billions and billions of dollars is just a regular guy and you can give him the elbow bump. I mean, cut it out. You know, I, I almost, I see a talk about appropriation. You know, I'm thinking you're, you're appropriating a just folks that never existed. All right. Cause in real working class families where I grew up, at least in my experience, formality was important. You said yes, sir. No, sir. You thanked people. You had a certain demeanor. You were formal until you got to know the person. There was none of this, hey, buddy, kind of thing, you know? And when it did happen, when it, when that did happen, it was in a very different context. You know, this, what is this, this billionaire populism? Mm-hmm. That's exactly right. Yeah. I mean, this is stories we tell though. And Certain stories are really, telling, you know, really. Telling. Yeah. Yeah. Donald Trump is just folks, you know, uh, he's he eats a burger like I do. You know, he doesn't go in for that sushi stuff. He eats a burger, you know, and it, it works. It matters. It works. Unfortunately, it does work. It works way more because it's the narrative paradigm. It's telling the story. Andrew, and it's not new. Andrew Jackson used it. That in populism of the early 19th century, it's nothing new. Here's a guy, Richard, and he's got more land than anybody in Tennessee, and he's going around acting like ah, he's just a regular guy. Henry V, touch of how. I'm trying to figure out, like, is this is the human story a tragedy or is it a comedy? Well, tragedy gives us, in some ways, gives us too much credit for, you know, for 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 apprehending significance, right? And comedy, comedy just, you got to be careful because comedy, what does comedy say? Comedy says, comedy really means what it meant was that things turn out well. That was its original definition, the divine comedy. It doesn't mean ha, 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 ha. It means you do everything wrong. You screw up. You do things all wrong. And in the end, it turns out right. So the Christian gospels are supposedly a comedy because, you know, you do everything wrong. God himself dies on the cross for you and you go to heaven. All right. All right. Comedy means things turn out. So in that sense, comedy means, for instance, American positivism, American positive thinking, Emersonianism. It's kind of a com it's kind of a comedy in the sense that it's like, even though we'd never think of Emerson as being a good stand-up comedian, he's not. All right. He talks about the sublime, but in the end, it's about there's a happy ending if you want it. Tragedy is in some respects, the terror, recognition of the terror and pity of what we, of our intrinsic faults that lead to our downfall. Suppose both are true. I wonder if sometimes with tragedies, uh, we don't 
where we anticipate them too early and we don't allow for second chances. So. Well, yeah, yeah. And or the word tragic. I am so sick of hearing it on the news. Every time right. some kid gets shot, they shoot. There's a mass shooting. The tragedy. You know, everybody's in a tragedy. That word kills everything that we could say genuine about this. Suppose you didn't say anything. So you said, look at this stupid farce. Look at these idiots. Oh, he thinks he's going to be famous. He's going to be famous for four minutes. All right? He just went, I mean, what are you going to do? Derision almost works better. Mercutio, a plague on all your houses. You know, the word tragedy is is like used so people are nice. You know, oh, that was very tragic. You're, I'm sorry. You know, a, it's also a word used to get rid of you. Your mother just died. Your dog got run over. Everything in your life is bad. You're sleeping in the fetal position, begging life to kill you. And someone goes, oh, that's a tragedy. You know? Or they go, well, you know, sometimes it's darkest before the dawn or whatever. They throw, a, they throw something at you that's a cliche. And what they're really saying is, shut up. I don't want to see you. Thank you all so much for listening. Episode two of this season will be with the amazing Akua Leslie Hope. Until then, here's Joe to take us out. Peace. The Elizabeth Arch was once considered one of the great architectural wonders of America. By the time I came along, it just became a place for homeless alcoholics and drug addicts to hang out. And this poem is basically about seeing people in their animality, but also because you see them in their fullness in that, you know, in some way, you also see what is beyond the human. You see something beautiful in a scene that people just look at. And I compare them to deer. It's almost what we were talking about with the loading dock, you know, seeing the bear. Okay, so the bear. The bear coming to the trash heap, sure, it can be looked at as tragic, but it can also say that you can't kill beauty in a way.